Welcome back to our midweek Bible study. So good to be with you again. As many Christians have noted over the years, there's often a delay between God's promise and its fulfillment, right? It was 25 years between the time that God promised to Abraham and the time when Isaac was actually born, right? It was 20 years between the time when God gave Joseph the dreams and the time when his brothers and fathers actually bowed down before him in Egypt. And it was likely a decade or maybe even a little longer between the time when Samuel anointed young David as Israel's future king and the time when he actually began to reign at age 30. Now, God always fulfills every single one of his promises, but there's often a delay between God's promise and its fulfillment. And we're going to see God's promise to David be fulfilled as we study the first five chapters of 2 Samuel uh, under five different headings. We have a wrong-headed lie. Secondly, a heartfelt lament. Thirdly, a savage struggle. Fourthly, a king established. And fifthly, a kingdom extended. It all starts with a wrong-headed lie in 2 Samuel Chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. And you'll remember from last week that while David and his men were experiencing the thrill of victory, Saul and his entourage were experiencing the agony of defeat. And it takes three days for that bad news uh, to reach David, who was in Ziklag, some 50-plus miles away from where the battle lines were. Anyway, a man from Saul's camp arrives after three days with his clothes torn. He's got dirt on his head. And it's real similar to that sign of, of grief or horror that we saw back with Eli in 1 Samuel 4 when the messenger told him that Israel had been defeated and his sons had died and the ark of God had been captured. Well, uh, anyway, David asks, uh, you know, the, the guy says, I'm a messenger. He lays, bows down, pays homage to David. And uh, then he informs David that, hey, I escaped from Israel's camp. And David says, well, how'd the battle go? You know, what happened? You know, the, the battle that, remember, David and his men had been dismissed from by the Philistine lords. And the answer is grim. It comes in three headlines, each kind of a little bit worse than the previous, in a sense. Many Israelites fled from the battle. That's not good. Secondly, many of the Israelites were killed in the battle. Ah, and Saul and his son David were also killed. Oh man, it's just crushing, right? And David latches onto that last piece of information, especially he wants to make sure that's accurate. Exactly how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead, right? And that's when we hear the wrong-headed lie from this young man. Now we know from the word of God in 1 Samuel 31 that Saul had been badly wounded by the Philistine archers, remember? And then he had uh, asked his armor bearer to finish him off, but the armor bearer refused to do so, and Saul took his own life. He fell on his own sword, and actually his armor bearer then did the same. They took their own lives, but now, in the very next chapter of what is, again, a unified book of First and Second Samuel, the messenger lies in an apparent attempt to gain favor with David. Right? So he tells David this wrong-headed lie, uh, thinking David's going to be the one to replace Saul as king. Oh, well, here, here's the story. Uh, by chance, I just happened to be there on Mount Gilboa, just scrolling along. It sounds fishy already. 
And I saw Saul in anguish. He was leaning on his spear. The Philistines were closing in on him. He called to me. And, and after learning that I was an Amalekite, he asked me to finish him off, which I did. So you see, really, David, it, it was a mercy killing. It was, it was a dignified death at Saul's own request, uh, especially since I was sure that Saul couldn't go on living in his fallen, wounded condition. Oh, and by the way, afterward, uh, I, I grabbed Saul's crown and, and his armlet, and uh, I brought him here to you, my Lord. Right? I mean, he probably thinks this is going to be good news for David, but it's the exact opposite. <laughs> the first thing that David and the men with him did was tear their clothes and weep and mourn and fast until evening for Saul and Jonathan and the Lord's people in the house of Israel that had fallen by the sword. If we had any lingering doubts about David's allegiance, you know, when he was marching out with the Philistine armies, it's put to rest here. I mean, his heart was broken over Israel's defeat. Then David's dialogue with the young man resumes. Uh, when David finds out that the messenger, the, the one who supposedly killed Saul, was an Amalekite son of a sojourner, he charges him with wrongfully destroying the Lord's anointed. How is it that you weren't afraid to, to destroy the Lord's anointed? Right? Leviticus 24, 22 establishes the same rule for the sojourner as for the native Israelite. So this sojourner's son should have known better. Just like David and Saul's armor bearer, he should have known better than to kill the Lord's anointed. The young man had probably been expecting some favor from David, probably rehearsing it in his head as he made the three-day trek. Right now, he had finished off David's rival. You know, he had brought him the crown. Maybe he could enjoy a nice, cushy government job in the new administration. Uh, what he got was executed for claiming to kill the Lord's anointed which he admitted to with his own mouth, right? His blood was on his own head. Ironically, this guy was punished for what he said he did, even though he didn't do it. Well, that brings us to our second section of a heartfelt lament, a heartfelt lament. Uh, after what we estimate to be maybe around a decade of dodging Saul's spears and living on the run from Saul, we might expect David to express relief or, or even rejoice at his adversary's death. But we don't hear a cold-hearted, Saul's gone finally, good riddance, right? Guy's been a thorn in my... No, this opponent who had done him so much wrong, David laments. He pours out a heartfelt lament over Saul. David even teaches the people of Judah to join in his lament. It's written in the book of Jasher, which is an extra-biblical book referenced also in Joshua 10.13. So earlier, verses 11 and 12, we saw David's spontaneous grief, right? Mourning, weeping, fasting. But now in this lament, we kind of see a more formal or thoughtful written expression of David's sorrow. Uh, I appreciate what commentator Davis says. This is like a structured sorrow or a, a coherent agony. And the main theme of David's lament is repeated three times at the beginning, in verse 19, in the middle, in verse 25, and at the end, in verse 27. How the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. Saul, Jonathan, so many of Israel's mighty warriors had fallen. And David cringes at the thought of 
the battle reports going to the Philistine cities of, of Gath and Ashkelon. He, he shrinks back when he considers uh, the post-battle party and rejoicing led by the Philistine women. Right? Oh, an uncircumcised people, those, those who were out of covenant relationship with the Lord, they're exalting in the good news of their victory over the Israelites. And, and maybe they even supposed over Israel's God. Well, David wishes that Mount Gilboa, where it had all happened, would just be barren forever, right? It's shamefully littered with the bodies and the shields of, of mighty Israelites, including King Saul's leather shield that would never be oiled up again for battle. You remember the shame of Gilboa, you Judahites, and the death of mighty Saul, you people of Judah. As you train for our next clash with the Philistines, I want you to remember this. Say this lament over and over. It's it's a bit like the battle cry of Sam Houston's troops, right? Remember the Alamo. In verses 22 and 23, David goes on to recall how Jonathan's bow, the very bow that Jonathan had used, remember, to warn David back in chapter 20, he never turned back from battle against God's enemies. And he remembered how Saul's sword did not return empty in battle or war. Both father and son had so much success with their weapons like They were like swift eagles. They were like strong lions in battle, David rhapsodizes. And though Jonathan was, was the ultimate friend to David, certainly, he also was right there by his father's side right until the end. Davis observes that David here, interestingly, assigns the women of Israel the task of weeping over Saul, but he turns away to mourn alone over his great friend Jonathan. Saul may have brought prosperity, right, that decked out Israel's women in scarlet or crimson, but Saul's son, Jonathan, extended a faithful, brotherly love to David that surpassed even the love of women, he says. And out of that deep love came deep grief. I'm distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. David mourned their, their special friendship, including Jonathan's remarkable self-denial and completely loyal support of David. It was a heartfelt lament. And that brings us to our third section of a savage struggle. Second Samuel chapters 2 to 4 tell the brutal story of the power struggles between David and Saul's son, Ishbosheth. I encourage you to read these chapters, even though they aren't included in your binder. I'm just going to give you the Cliff Notes version so we can make sure to reach the climactic Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and 7 next week before we take our break for the holidays. Well, we find in chapter 2 that northern Israel is following Ishbosheth in Mahanim, whereas southern Judah is following David in Hebron. And chapter 3, verse 1, provides, I think, a good summary of this whole section. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. In fact, David's commander, Joab, kills Ishbosheth's commander, Abner. Now, David himself is innocent in all of this. In fact, he curses Joab for what he's done, and he laments Abner's death. Then in chapter 4, Ishbosheth's or other military leaders actually assassinate him. But again, David himself was innocent, and, and he refers to Ishbosheth actually as a righteous man. So the, the big picture of chapters 2, 3, and 4 is that in all the civil war going on in Israel, and the 
change of administration, we might say, from Saul to David, David himself is innocent, right? So when Saul's supporters are dead at the hands of others, mind you, all the elders and tribes of Israel rallied around David as their king. The cliff notes from chapters 2 to 4 then bring us to our next section of a king established, 2 Samuel 5, verses 1 to 16. The elders of all Israel's tribes realized, hey, David's one of our own, right? He, he's our own bone and flesh. And he was a proven military leader. All the victories David had been leading those. And, and he was the Lord's chosen shepherd, their chosen leader for Israel. So at the age of 30, they come to him and David makes a covenant before the Lord. It's a covenant before the Lord, notice, to reign as king. And we're told that David does this for a total of 40 years. It's a remarkable reign. It had been more than a decade in the making, but God had now fulfilled his promise that David would be the king over Israel. There have been many obstacles along the way, right? Think of all the shenanigans with Saul and the Philistines and even David's own foolishness. But now the Lord's chosen king was on the throne. And to further consolidate his reign in both the north and the south, David moved his capital from Hebron to the more centrally located city of Jerusalem. Kind of like setting up your capital in Columbus rather than in the southwest in Cincinnati or the northeast in Cleveland. right? But first, David has to dislodge the Jebusites from Jerusalem. And that's no small task. Joshua 15, 6, 63 and Judges 121 tell us that despite all their military successes, the people of Judah had failed to drive the Jebusites out of Jerusalem. It was a tough fortress to take on. Approximately 800 years earlier, God had promised to give the land of the Jebusites to Abraham's offspring. You read that in Genesis 15. And now finally, 800 years later, under David's leadership, the promise is fulfilled. And here's how it happens, right? The Jebusites are kind of cocky about their strongly fortified city, and they even taunted David by saying, you know, even the blind and lame could ward you off. You know, we don't even need able-bodied warriors to keep you out of our city. But David and his men, led by Joab, according to First Chronicles, entered the city secretly through the water shaft, and they overtook the stronghold of Zion, which then became known as we continue to know it, is the city of David. David then further fortified the city. He, he, he built a series of terrace walls on the steep slope. He filled in behind to create level areas. But it wasn't all about David's cleverness or his ingenuity. No, verse 10 tells us, why did David become greater and greater? For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. That was the key. And when Hiram, uh, the, the king of Tyre, sent David wood and carpenters and masons to, to build him a proper king's house there in Jerusalem, David knew it was the Lord who had established him as king and had exalted David's kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. So David gave God the credit, but he didn't obey all of God's laws. Verse 13 says that besides Ahinoam and Abigail and Michal, who we've met before, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. Now that was a violation of Deuteronomy 17.17, 17, which commands that Israel's king shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. 
We all know that's going to be part of Solomon's undoing, and it's a mark against David here as well. There's, there's no hero worship of David allowed. As Alistair often says, the best of men are men at best, and that's true of David. So the basic storyline here is positive, right? And we see this in the final section, which we're calling a kingdom extended, a kingdom extended. Now that David's king over all of Israel, the north and the south, and now that he's captured a tough city in, in Jerusalem and established himself there, the Philistines consider him quite a threat. So they muster their troops for battle nearby in the valley of Rehaim. And then David does the right thing by inquiring of the Lord, just as he had with Keilah and the Amalekite raiders and Hebron before. And the Lord answers. He tells David, yes, go against the Philistines. I'm going to give them into your hands. And of course, God keeps his promise. And then David gives the Lord credit. Don't you love that? He, The Lord is the one who bursts through my enemies like a flood sweeping over them. Uh, and David and his men, in fact, take the Philistine idols that they were left there. And according to 1 Chronicles 14, 12, they burned those idols, got rid of them. The second time around, the Philistines came back for round two in the Valley of Rephim. Uh, David again inquired of the Lord. He didn't assume that, oh, I got this. I've seen this before. Based on round one, I'll, you know, we'll go. Into no, he inquires of the Lord again. And God gives a different answer this time, right? Not to confront them head on like he did the first time, but to go around to their rear where apparently David could use what seemed like the sound of balsam trees in the wind as a cover for his attack from behind. God actually gave David the battle plans and then God went out before David to strike down the Philistines, driving them all the way back to their town of Gezer. Two keys here, David inquired of the Lord and David did what the Lord commanded him to do. There's so much to learn from the, the wrong-headed lie and the heartfelt lament, the savage struggle, uh, the king established and the kingdom extended. Consider these six points by way of application as we conclude. Number one, are you ever tempted to lie to gain someone's favor? I mean, it's a pretty common thing like the Amalekite messenger did. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's breaking one of God's Ten Commandments. and You see how it worked out for this guy. Number two, are you carrying a continued grief in your life? Just something weighing on your heart. Consider actually composing a lament and offering up to the Lord, right? David models that for us here and in the Psalms. Number three, do you think we're living in unprecedentedly evil times? Well, I think you can get some historical perspective by going back and reading chapters two, three, and four of 2 Samuel. The good old days weren't always so good. <laughs> Number four, has God established you in an exalted position? If so, give the Lord credit for being with you and do as the Lord commands. Use your position to serve others, right? That's what David did. He gave God the credit and used his position to serve. Number five, are you unsure about a situation in your life? Inquire of the Lord. Inquire of the Lord and then follow God's guidance, as David did with the Philistines. Sixth and finally, are you waiting on a promise of God to be fulfilled? Are you waiting on a promise of God to be fulfilled? Well, wait with patience and with certainty that God who promised is faithful. 
God will surely do it, though it will be in his timing and not ours. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you as a promise-keeping God. You, the Lord, faithfully keep all of your promises. So we put all of our trust in you as we await the full establishment of your glorious, never-ending kingdom at the return of Jesus Christ, through whom we pray. Amen.